The Matrix is a computer-generated dream world built to keep us under control in order to change a human being. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Pain.tv. Join the discussion at Pain.tv slash gold. Ladies and gentlemen, we are back from the break. I am Dustin Gold. This is the Dustin Gold Standard, and you are listening to pain.tv slash gold. Folks, over the last month, I've asked you to reach out if you have any important information you'd like to discuss, any research that you've done over the years, and you can send me stuff over at gold at pain.tv, the email address, or over at pain.tv slash gold, either in the public forum or through direct message. And so I've had a lot of people reaching out to me with information. And so I said, let me bring somebody on this show. So Dana, who is a avid listener of the Thomas Paine podcast, started listening to the Dust and Gold Standard, reaches out all the time with all kinds of interesting information that he's been following over the years. So the other day, I vetted him, and you know how I do that? I call Maria Albanese, the co-host of the Thomas Paine Podcast, and I say, hey, Maria, is this guy Dana cool to talk to? And she says, yes, and that is my vetting process. So <laughs> I got on the phone with Dana for about an hour, and we had a fascinating conversation, and hopefully we will blow your mind here today because he's been following following this, uh, whether it was called the technocracy years ago or transhumanism and all the stuff going on with Operation Paperclip and what the Soviets were doing. He's been following this stuff for years. And so he knows a lot more than I do. And I love to be educated. I love to gain additional knowledge. So Dana, it's great to have you on the show. How are you this afternoon? I'm doing great, Dustin. Thanks for having me on. No, this should be a great conversation. So how, how long have you been listening to the Thomas Paine podcast? Uh, since early 20, uh, 2020, when the uh, COVID thing first broke out, um, my wife and I both have had some bad reactions to medications and, and some medical advice over the years. And when the whole COVID thing hit, I was quite suspicious, but I couldn't really find anybody who's sentiments echoed mine or at least my suspicions and then while just searching on the internet one day i came across a, a thomas Paine podcast that was talking about it so um, i listened to it and was just completely blown away and never really looked back like and then two days later he had maria on i heard her for the first time and i was like nah, i need to kind of hitch my wagon to this star for a while because these folks know what they're talking about and like i said been there ever since Oh, that's great. Now, do you mind me asking, and we didn't talk about this uh, the other day, but what was your entrance um, into, say, politics or political news or analysis? How did you start um, becoming interested in the world uh, and all the things that are going on around us and the people who have control over us? Oh gosh, this goes this goes way back. I think this goes back before the Civil War when I was a kid. <laughs> um, I just I grew up, you know, in in the fifties and and sixties, and and you know, graduated high school in the early seventies. And at that time period in the country, it seemed like the mood of the country was was split down the middle. You had the 
kind of like the hippie um, movement going on on one side, and you had this this like ultra conservative, you know, Johnson Nixon thing going on on the other side. And I mean, even though Johnson wasn't a political conservative, I mean, he's from Texas back in you know the day. So, you know, we were told to you know respect the police. We were told to respect uh, the government. We were taught to respect the flag and our servicemen. And I mean, I, that's the way I was raised. And, that was done in school and it was, it was done at home. And so I did. And then I read a book called, um, bury my heart at wounded knee. And I got a completely different perspective on general Custer. <laughs> and <laughs> I thought, you know, for all my life, you know, the movies I've seen and the talks I've heard and what I've heard in my history classes and elementary school and stuff, you know, Custer was the good guy. You know, the great American hero who went west and those bad old Indians killed him. And I started reading the story and I was going like, well, they should have killed him. You know, <laughs> the guy, the guy <laughs> was a monster. And, you know, if, if what they've told me about Custer isn't true, what else are they telling me that's not true? And that just kind of set up a, I don't know, it was a healthy or unhealthy suspicion of things that were going on above my head, you know, and in, in governmental circles and all that. And that. You know, and then I sort of got into the counterculture thing in the, the late 60s, early 70s, and found out that Mr. Policeman really wasn't my friend. And uh, so that's just kind of what got it started. And uh, I've, I've just had, like I said, I've had this suspicion of authority um, from then on and looked into things. And um, one of the early shows that VM did with Mike, he said, um, you know, if you're listening to anything that's coming off mainstream media or coming out of Washington, D.C., you know, consider it a lie until, you know, you can prove it otherwise. And so that's kind of always sort of been my philosophy. And um, that's just where I go. Um, that just that's that's worked for me. I don't know if it worked for everybody else, but it works for me. Yeah. So so back then uh, in the uh, late 60s, early 70s, as you said, uh, and I'm 41, so I wasn't alive then. But you had at least this uh, sort of illusion that the country was like 50-50, half was uh, hippie, half was more conservative. And so when you grew up, what you grew up more on the uh, like conservative side? Well, I grew up in a small southern rural foothills town, right? The foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains uh, in North Carolina and, and Virginia. And so most everybody in town was conservative. There were not many people that had long hair. Um, you know, I remember when I was in high school, I knew three people who had smoked pot. And then, you know, I moved away, went off to college and, and stuff and came back. And uh, when I moved back here in 1989, you know, we had kids dying of heroin. So, you know, things have drastically changed. But back in that day and time, you know, you you talk about profiling. I mean, if you had long hair, you got pulled. If somebody, if the, if the cop saw it, you got pulled and, and your car got searched and you got hassled and all kinds of stuff. So I, I you know, I kind of lived, you know, with all this conservatism around me. And at the same time, you know, just I couldn't go along with it. I, I didn't go along with it. I didn't. Uh, I supported our soldiers who were fighting in Vietnam. But I thought the war was bogus, uh, you know, and, and that later proved to be true. Um, there was an article, um, I think it was in a Playboy magazine in the mid-70s, 1970s. And 
the title of the article, something like the Vietnam technology. And this is, I think, after the war had ended. And the, the author was saying that there were a lot of technologies that the military was developing, but they had no way to really try them out. They needed a war. They needed a real-time testing situation because they couldn't really test them on our people in this country. But, hey, you know, we were out there stopping communism in Vietnam, and so uh, they had the perfect place to try out all this new technology that the military was trying to develop. Uh, I don't remember who the author was, and I really don't remember much past that, but I remember thinking, like, well, this war was for commercial purposes. And just kind of as an aside, um, I, I was doing, I was working in a cabinet shop. I was making cabinets and doing woodworking, and we were able to buy walnut wood, just dirt cheap. It was as cheap as pine until the war in Vietnam ended, and then all of a sudden, the price shot up, and I was talking to the guy at the, the lumberyard about it, and he said, yeah, he said, we were getting all this walnut out of Vietnam. So they were, you know, defoliating the forest, cutting down all the trees and shipping the logs over here, and that's why we had so much walnut around, because it was all coming out of Vietnam. And I wondered, you know, how much other stuff that was really good for our economy, you know, was coming at from the Vietnam War, from our own soldiers being maimed and killed and countless Vietnamese people maimed and killed and uh and, and it was all for nothing. We just split, you know, we said, okay, we're done. We're leaving now. And uh nothing was ever really settled and South Vietnam fell to the North Vietnamese and, you know, the rest is history. But um yeah, the, I, I that got me thinking, you know, that you know, war is good business and a lot of people got rich off that war. And it really had very little to do with stopping communism because we didn't stop communism. <laughs> and we've since become kind of a communist country of our own. And so that war was just a testing ground for, for the military. And it was probably something that made politicians and big businessmen lots and lots of money at the expense of, you know, good people who got hurt very badly. Yeah, probably that's interesting. Oh, definitely. And that that's interesting. Now, let me ask you this, because... Um, I think we all go through this. Anyone who is like truly woke to the to the matrix that we live inside of. So you start off with like more conservative, traditional sort of law and order values just from the area where you came from, what you grew up under. And then in the beginning, before you, let's say, started doing a lot of research into these topics, and I would imagine sort of based on our conversation and what you've just said here, you've reached a point somewhere in your life where you realize the whole thing is a clown show. Did you initially turn from the conservatism uh, to like the hippie culture, the counterculture, as you mentioned earlier? Was that like your first reaction to withdraw from the right to the left? Well, I don't really consider myself withdrawing from the right and going to the left. I, I, I didn't really like anybody. I didn't like the liberals. I didn't like the conservatives. I didn't like the arguments. That's why I, I didn't get into politics much um, other than to distrust them and, and try to find stuff that I could to, to prove what I, I feared or thought about them. Uh, but I just, I found that, you know, all these, you know, dirty hippies that uh, were so bad and that I wasn't supposed to, to go near Turned out to be some pretty decent people. Not all of them. There were there were there's crooks in every, you know, um, facet of life. But a lot of people who were getting really bad raps, you know, and at least in our area, I found to be pretty nice people and very generous and uh, caring. And 
yeah, they got high and, and that was against the law. But, uh, by that time I was to the place to where, you know, the law didn't mean much to me because the people who were writing the laws and the people who were enforcing the laws were pretty bad people too, you know, sometimes worse than the people who were breaking the laws. Right, and so, so, so like they, I said, I don't feel like I went from conservative to liberal, but I just kind of just I became more outlaw, I guess, in my thinking. I was going to say, so you figured out pretty early on that the system was run by, as as Mike would say, a bunch of licensed criminals, essentially, which which I think are worse than, like you say, regular criminals, because these guys are posing as the law-abiding saviors of society. Well, you know, these are people who sent, uh, you know, how many, 70, 80,000 uh, young men to their death in Vietnam and, and countless thousands other ones uh, wounded either physically or, or mentally, and not to mention the damage that was done to the Vietnamese people, too. And, you know, you're getting away with murder for profit, but you're going to lock somebody up who's smoking a joint. What's wrong with this picture, you know? And so, you know, I, there's a, a song Bob Dylan did, I think, Absolutely Sweet Marie, where he says, to live outside the law, you must first be honest. And that really rang true with me. And I thought, you know, I don't have much respect for the law anymore because the law goes to the highest bidder. And if you don't have money, then you can get in trouble real quick. And if you have money, you never get in trouble. And if you do get in trouble, you get out of it. And so, um, so like I said, I don't consider my, never consider myself really a liberal or conservative. I felt like more like an outlaw. I just, you know, I, I don't respect the people who write the laws and not all. I'm not again, I had family who was law enforcement and I have family now who was law enforcement. So I never really was totally militant against law enforcement, but I was militant against law enforcement that was corrupt and just sadistic mean looking to hurt somebody uh looking to bust somebody for something now that said like i said there are a lot of law enforcement officers that i know and have known over the years that were salt of the earth people who really were trying to protect and serve and help people so like i said this isn't a rant against cops uh because i have a lot of respect for good cops but just like anybody who's bad bad politicians bad cops bad teachers bad whoever you know, if you're if you're bad and you're what you're doing is harming people, then no, I've got no respect for you at all. And yeah. um, so it's it, I don't have carte blanche respect or disrespect. Every like Martin Luther King said, you got to judge everybody by their actions. And so that's kind of what I did. Oh yeah, well, there's good and bad people in all walks of life. And you know, I'll say that too. I grew up. Uh, my father was a cop. Uh, tried to fight City Hall uh, about the year before I was born, so in 1980, ended up getting kicked out of there. He he was trying to fight corruption. He thought he was Serpico, uh, <laughs> fighting corruption in the city of New Haven, and it ended up getting him fired. But he's been a private investigator ever since uh, I was born in 1981, so I grew up around a lot of cops, a lot of guys that were ex-military who became cops, a lot of lawyers. So since I was one or two
22 years old, I used to hang out at cop bars with him. He dragged me around everywhere. So I grew up in that culture. And most of the guys I grew up calling aunt and uncle were all cop friends of my dad, people that would babysit me when I was little. So I always had respect for cops. Back then, there was factions of the cops, and the minority groups were really the Irish cops, the Polish cops, the German cops, the Italian cops, and they would war amongst each other. But what happened with me, sort of where I saw this, I was fighting an issue in the city of New Haven, Connecticut, back when I was about 25, 26 years old, and I had become sort of a firebrand in the local media and i was fighting an entrenched 20-year democrat mayor who was uh ushering in this is back in 2007 the first in the nation illegal alien id card and i had done a lot of research a lot of investigation into this similar to what i do on this show and i had connected all to a banking scandal that the mayor was involved with and so there were a lot of guys that were getting ready to retire a lot of cops who were my dad's friends at this time they would have been in their 50s and then their kids who became cops who were on the force and so it got to the point where i was uh organizing protests at city hall uh in front of the mayor's house and i started to see all these cops that would talk a big game behind the scenes they knew a lot of dirt about the mayor and everything else when the mayor snapped his fingers they would block the front door threaten to arrest me if i tried to come into city hall and that's when i started to say to my father you know your your friends are nothing but a bunch of goons for the government they're no different than the welfare recipients that they talk trash about when they're off duty they will take the paycheck and at the end of the day they will take the orders from king john de stefano which is what we used to call him and they'll lock me out of city hall but when we're having a beer with these guys they're telling me i'm a hero so that's when i started to not lose respect for let's say them individually because they weren't like vigilante cops or anything like that but i lost respect for the police as a whole because i said they're nothing but an ss force for the government and when the time comes they're going to do what they're told to do well my grandfather on my mother's side was a deputy sheriff in york county pennsylvania and one of his jobs was to escort prisoners who had been convicted and sentenced to go to prison to the state uh, penitentiary uh, for the eastern part of Pennsylvania. He would actually, and you think about this now, and it's it's almost impossible to, to envision this, but he would take a prisoner, and before he would take him to prison, he would take him to his house and have my grandmother cook them a really nice meal so they could have one really good meal before they went to to state pen and he did this all the time and you know you think about somebody doing that today they would probably throw him in prison but um you know he would keep up with these guys he would send them cigarettes because it was cool to smoke back then and uh candy and paperback books and just kind of stay up with them and then when they would get out of prison he would try to help them find a job and and was was you know that was my view of law enforcement as a kid and i thought man you know this is this is a great thing um and when he passed away i, re- I remember you'd see some of these guys come in boy and they were hard boiled um and you know this is back before the kids started getting tattoos so these guys had you know navy tattoos and stuff all over them rough looking guys and they would come in and they said hey you know uh you know, um, you don't know me, but uh, your husband's to my grandmother said, your husband did me a good turn one time. And I just wanted to come by and pay my respects. And, you know, these were some scary looking dudes. But um, 
that was my view of law enforcement. And then when I became like a teenager and in my early twenties, you know, everything changed. Now I got cops after me and now I got cops. If they see me, they pull me just because of my looks. Uh, and then, you know, we, we, we need to look in your car. You carrying any drugs, you know, you got any guns and then just, and no, I don't, but you know, it just it was hassled. You were just hassled by the cops. And, and I got my opinion of law enforcement changed at that point in time. Now, like I said, I, you can't paint them all with the same brush, but going from one extreme to the other, uh, just further fueled my distrust of authority and my suspicion of authority. And that's really never gone away. So, um, you know, no, I know that's like interesting. there's good cops and bad cops. Yeah, you know, and, and legal man who I just got done interviewing, you know, he's made a great point, you know, and, and he says the same thing you and I do, or Mike will, will say as well, you know, again, you have to judge these people individually, but at the end of the day, you know, legal man brings up this point that you have people that are in, let's say the rural areas, the center of the country, who should be on our side, meaning you know, against government, exposing the lies, uh, trying to understand, um, you know, the power the government and the state has over us. But these are the guys who will have the, the back, the blue bumper sticker right next to the don't tread on me bumper sticker on their pickup truck. And he's saying that the very guys who tread on you are, in fact, the blue, because at the end of the day, they are the enforcement arm of the government that goes for you know police state police sheriff's departments uh, irs agents everything else that they are the ones that get sent out there to enforce the laws on behalf of the state whether they agree with the laws understand the laws it doesn't really matter they're the ones who are being sent out there as the enforcers well you know another thing that that you know i guess fueled my kind of tinfoil helmet conspiracy side um was you know i was alive and cognizant and in school uh for the assassinations of uh, john f kennedy martin luther king and and robert kennedy and you know there were always so many questions and and you know the, they they had all these committees that um you know just kind of painted over everything whitewashed it closed it up all oh, the lone gunman just a crazy guy did this and nothing to see here folks move on and then as, you know, I, I grew older and, you know, read more people and read more things about this and started seeing things. And, and you know, and, and then, I, you know, I heard, you know, that, that you know, President George H.W. Bush, who when he was head of the CIA, um, huh. you know, when he was um, asked, where were you when John F. Kennedy was killed? And he goes, I don't really know. I don't remember where I was that day. And everybody had seen him in Dallas. He was there. So, you know, and I'm going like, they're all rotten. They're just rotten. They're from top to bottom. It's, it's you know, we, I think when you cross the, the borderline into Washington, D.C., it's just one great big, huge swimming pool full of snakes. And yeah, no. um, they, they just, you know, they lie for a living and they steal for a living and they commit murder for a living. And if they don't, then they know those who do. And nobody's going to do anything. Like Mike talks about the big protection racket. And, you know, and that's a hard pill to swallow because I know so many people who, um, you know, when, when President Trump was elected and, and they were going to you know, we're gonna put Hillary in jail and we're going to get all these people who were spying on Donald Trump and, and, you know, got this, you know, dossier and all this stuff, you know, and, and you know, and Mike said, nope, not going to happen, not going to happen, you know, it's, 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 you know. 
Bill Barr's in there, and he is not going to let anything happen. You know, don't worry about that. Nobody's going to jail. And I know a lot of people who were very, very disillusioned at this because they get their news from Sean Hannity or whoever. And, you know, yeah, they're going to put all these people in jail and and it didn't happen. Nobody got indicted and these people got off scot-free. And and it's just it's just further indicative of the fact that you just can't trust anybody up there. Oh, 100 percent. And when you take that situation you just brought up there, you know, some people look at it from, let's say, the supposed right wing of the country or the left wing of the country. So you had one side being promised that Trump was a Russian agent and he was going to be taken down and put in prison and everyone around him was a Russian agent. And they were all going to go to prison and then we were going to like send an army over to arrest Vladimir Putin and he was going to go to prison and all these other people in Russia were going to go to prison. And then the right was promised everyone trying to set Trump up as a Russian agent was going to go to prison. And at the end of the day, nobody goes to prison. And the whole thing was a giant sham. It was basically four years straight of just complete and total distraction. Uh, while what I believe has been advancing behind the scenes, I just got done talking to Legal Man a little bit about this sort of what we see at the surface level, the Clown World Circus, the WWE Wrestling Act, while in fact they're kind of ushering in this technocracy this transhumanist technocracy that we're witnessing today so in the end both sides or people that identify as the right or left are and end up disappointed and neither of them get a win well there's a reason why magicians have a pretty young girl in a bathing suit assisting them so everybody <laughs> watches her and they don't see what he's doing <laughs> you know and all these things that they do all these things that they say these things that they make these huge big stories out of uh, are just a distraction, you know, and when, when another big story hits the air, my first suspicion now is I need to be looking elsewhere because somebody's doing something they don't want me to know about. You know, they want me to get focused on, on whatever the news du jour is, uh, the big story, you know, that, that's going on. And, you know, I like even like the, the war in Ukraine, and I am not doubting that many, many people have lost their lives and suffered over that. I had friends who were in the Ukraine um, uh, the children of some friends that were in the Ukraine and, and they escaped, they, they got to Poland, but it took them weeks and weeks and weeks. And it was just a real nail biting situation. Uh, but you know, now you don't even hear about the war in Ukraine. It's just like, it just went away, you know, and well, wait a minute, we're sending all this money over there and you know, you know, all the stuff that's going on, but you turn on the news, you don't hear anything about Ukraine anymore. Okay. That's old news. We don't need to talk about that anymore. Are, are people not dying anymore? Uh, people not getting blown up anymore. <laughs> Is Russia not trying to take the country anymore? Uh, what's going on? Why don't we hear about this? Well, because now we've got other things to shiny objects to dangle in front of the nation's faces so we don't look where we should look. Well, we're building a uh, military base, an army base in Poland right now. So I think we at least got part of what we wanted out of that whole situation. But yeah, no, I mean, you're right about that. And, and again, yeah, there's definitely people affected by it. A friend of my wife's is from 
Russia. She actually lived in Ukraine for a couple of years, lived in Poland for a couple of years. She lives here now in Washington, D.C. So she was over the house the other day and I was just sitting there. She has no idea what I do. I was just grilling her with questions and I'm like, so how are your parents doing over in Russia? What's going on? What's this? What's that? I got so much intelligence out of this girl who's obviously not involved with politics or anything else, uh, just on the whole situation. And now Russia isn't letting the uh, men leave because up to age 65, you are uh, could be drafted into the army. So like her father can't get out of Russia over in Ukraine. She has friends, similar situation where their fathers can't leave because Ukraine has basically the same law that the men can't leave. So now they're funneling all the women and the children into places like Poland. When I was in Poland a couple of months ago, I saw a lot of that going on. The Catholic Church is basically handling that. So you'll see a nun, like an old-fashioned nun. We really don't see many of those in the United States anymore. Walking down the street in Krakow with, you know, 20 Ukrainian children. And so you're seeing the stuff actually going on, what the end purpose and goals are. You'll never, um, you know, really know. I mean, there's multiple purposes that come out of this. But that's how I looked at the whole situation from the very beginning, why I don't focus on a lot of that stuff on my show. I'm trying to get to the bottom of this technocracy, where it came from, where we are, and where we're going, so I can try to avoid it as best as possible in my life. But yeah, every time you turn on the news, which I haven't done now in two years, you'll find another story to follow if you're interested in it. Oh yeah, there'll always, there'll always be something. There's always that carrot that they dangle out in front of you hanging off a stick. And if they can just get you to chase it, then you won't really uh, pay attention to what somebody else is doing. That, like I said, Mike said they're stealing your money while this is going on, and uh, that that's true. And you know, and I thought about you know the whole thing with with Trump and and Russia and the Russia collusion and all this kind of stuff. You know, I thought you know the Russians, uh, you know, are smarter and much more ruthless than we give them credit for. And if they had really wanted to do something nefarious, they'd have just done it. Uh, there wouldn't need to be accusations. It would have happened. Um, you know, they, Russia doesn't operate like everybody else does. And, you know, I've heard the old story, like we spent like, you know, $5 million to invent a ballpoint pen that would write upside down in space. And the Russians just used a pencil. But it worked. You know, what they do, they, do, they don't do things grand and on a big scale, but it works. You know, um, I like old bolt action rifles. I'm a military uh, kind of historian, uh, weaponry and stuff like that. And the old, especially the pre World War One, World War One, and up to the beginning of World War Two, rifles. The, the Russians had these old Moisen Nagant rifles, these big long thunder sticks. You know. And, you know, they, they, they last forever. I know people who buy them at gun shows and, and things like that who are collectors. And these things were built in the 1890s or early 1900s, and they're still in good shape. Uh, I read that in Vietnam, um, that for the Viet Cong, the old, you know, World War One, World War II issue Mo- Moisen Nagant rifles was the sniper rifle of choice. Uh, you know, the AK-47 fires off a lot of rounds, but, you know, it's not good at super long distance. Well, these old Moisen Nagant rifles, you know, they could reach out and touch it. It probably close to a mile away. And they weren't pretty. They weren't near as polished as our Springfield or the British Enfields or, or anything like that. But they work. And, and you know, if, if you, you hear the story about when, when Hitler invaded Russia, 
you know, Stalin and Hitler had made a deal that they would not attack each other when the war started. And Hitler reneged on his promise and attacked Russia and was getting close to Moscow when they finally convinced Stalin that the Germans were here. So he dismantled all of his factories that were in Moscow or to the, uh, to the west of Moscow, packed them up on trains and sent them all to the east and rebuilt them and started building his war machine. That was a huge feat that nobody ever thinks about. You know, so, uh, you know, if, like I said, if the Russians had really wanted to do something back in those days, they'd have done it. And, and it would have been it would have been successful. Might not have been pretty, but it would have worked. 